0: Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan, coming to you from
1: 4 Z in Mianjin, Brisbane. And today on the show... Unfortunately, something that snowballed probably just in the last two weeks. So that was when we decided to hit the alarm button and say, you know, we really need that support now. A youth community
0: radio station in Melbourne needs your support to keep operating.
2: Also... The drug checking doesn't increase drug use. What it does do is it decreases harm and it helps people make safer choices.
0: Calls for drug testing services are louder than ever after the deaths of two men at a Sydney music festival in late September. And later today...
3: Federally, we have the dingoes are considered native, but they're not listed as protected. There's no protection across the country, so that leaves all the states to manage dingoes however they wish to.
0: We learn more about dingoes and the vital role they play in our ecosystem. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on air across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today, Israel has declared a state of war following an unprecedented surprise attack by the Hamas militant group. The attacks began early Saturday morning, with what Hamas claims as 5,000 rockets fired into Israel. The death toll continues to rise in what experts are calling the deadliest attack in decades between the two sides, with current reports of over 700 Israelis killed under the Hamas assault and 400 Palestinians dead as Israel retaliates with airstrikes in Gaza. I spoke to Dr. Ayal Meiroz, Senior Lecturer in Peace and Conflict Studies at the University of Sydney, to find out more.
4: Well, early in the, in the weekend, uh, an unexpected attack, surprise attack by uh, Hamas and uh, Islamic Jihad uh, started with uh, thousands of rockets as a diversion, uh, fired at uh, different locations in Israel, including Tel Aviv area and even Jerusalem area. And under the cover of the missiles and the rockets, uh, a large and unprecedentedly large uh, force of uh, Palestinian militants crossed cross the border between Gaza Strip and Israel uh, through the fence uh, via air as well as the sea. And uh, in a surprise attack, uh, went and attacked about 22 Israeli towns, villages, and, uh, and even uh, military bases. Uh, and began a, a campaign of slaughter. Uh, there was a music festival nearby, and they, of young people, and they slaughtered 260. More than a hundred people were captured and uh, brought as hostages in back into the Gaza Strip. Other than a failure uh, of the Israeli intelligence to uh, foresee what was happening, there was also an operational failure by the Israeli army to respond, and as a result, it took hours in, uh, for the uh, Israeli forces to uh, reach the south, uh, the the villages and towns that were under siege and uh, the fighting uh, took much, much longer than expected and some is still uh, taking place now. Uh, Israel immediately uh, started uh, a call out of its uh, military reserve and at the same time uh, began uh, hammering uh, different uh, locations uh, in the Gaza Strip uh, by air. Uh, casualties are, as we know it now, at least 700 dead in, on the Israeli side with over 2,000 uh, wounded, and mounting casualties in Gaza, mostly civilians, uh, also in the hundreds, uh, over 300.
0: With the timing of the attack, it being Sabbath or a, a Jewish Jewish holiday, what does this say about, the, I guess, the calculations or the strategy behind the attack?
4: Well, uh, Jewish holidays are known to be... Uh, uh, kind of potential hotspots for uh, um, attacks, terrorist attacks because uh, a lot of soldiers are at home uh, being released uh, to spend their holidays with their families. Consequence, uh, usually uh, Israeli governments uh, put blockade on the Gaza Strip and the West Bank during those holidays to try and prevent or reduce the risks of uh, terrorist attacks. This time it didn't help because the breach of the border between Israel and Gaza was uh, through the fence and uh, over the fence rather than through the uh, openings. And uh, also uh, because the Israeli intelligence and Israeli army's focus was on the West Bank, where the uh, violent clashes have been going on for a while and not so much on Gaza.
0: On a global international scale with each state, like Palestine and Israel, having their own relations and allies. What what does this attack mean? I know that US forces have said they're moving closer in support of Israel.
4: Look, the escalation is not going to uh, involve, uh, say, uh, uh, Western countries or, or even most Arab countries. Their fear in Israel is that uh, other fronts may open but these are mainly in relation to uh, the border with Lebanon by Hezbollah, that is a a, a Shiite uh, organization supported by Iran, or even more directly by Iran, as well as uh, uh, escalation in the West Bank that is already overheating East Jerusalem and maybe even between Jews and Palestinians and mixed uh, Israeli cities. So uh, yes, there are fears of escalation, but these escalations will... uh, be still uh, more uh, local or uh, at worst uh, regional.
0: You know, this this can be viewed as a retaliation of what Palestine has suffered under decades of Israeli occupation. How has this attack or, I guess, this declaration of war escalated or prolonged the conflict, set back the chance of some resolution?
4: Uh, my my sense is that this is the most consequential event in the last uh, 50 years in the relationship between Palestinians and Israelis and that uh, Uh, This has dealt a devastating blow to any prospect of building mutual trust that was challenging to start with anyway. And uh, there is also, uh, you know, the possibility that uh, uh, with the escalation and the mounting uh, uh, death toll in Gaza, we will see also on the Palestinian side uh, a lot of resentment we are further away than we were to any kind of a solution to the... uh, conflict, either one state solution or two state solution, and we were very, very far to start with. The short-term and even medium-term chances of any any solutions were very remote uh, even uh, before the attack.
0: That was Dr Ayal Mayroz, Senior Lecturer in Peace and Conflict Studies at the University of Sydney, ending that report.
5: Across Australia, you're listening to The Wire, Community Radio's National Current Affairs Program.
6: The
0: push for drug testing services has once again featured in headlines across Australia after the tragic death of two festival goers at Sydney's Knockout Festival in late September. Pill testing is an effective harm reduction strategy, returning promising results in trial settings throughout Australia and overseas. Advocates are calling on politicians to change the current approach and commit to the implementation of drug testing services, saying every delay puts lives at risk. The Y is Isaac Brogan spoke with Cameron Francis, CEO of The Loop Australia, to find out more.
7: Can you just tell us a bit more about the work you do at The Loop and and give us some context on the problem that you guys are trying to address?
2: The Loop Australia was set up in 2018. Uh, We're pretty much all volunteers based in Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria. And uh, we're all people who work in alcohol and other drugs and research and public health. And we got together back in 2018 to try and set up an organisation that could deliver pill testing when the time is right. Uh, we figured that we needed to show government how we can do it, how it looks, and, and um, set up an organisation that can deliver drug checking when the time's right. So uh, when we were set up back in 2018, uh, there was still, and still happening at the moment, there was a whole range of deaths that happened in the summer of 2018, 2019 from people at music festivals are mostly to do with MDMA and really high dose MDMA. So pill testing or drug checking services are able to check the drugs that people are intending to take and we can tell them the purity of what they're going to take. And we can tell them if there's any other unexpected ingredients that they might uh, might not be choosing to take. And so we can give people information about what might be in their drugs and help them make better choices.
7: So given that this approach has returned promising results, uh, both in trial settings here in Australia and also overseas, and that the more hardline approaches appear to result in riskier behavior. Why do you think that the push for drug checking services has been met with hesitancy by state governments?
2: I think every time we try and do some sort of drug law reform or increase access to harm reduction services, um, it's a real struggle. And I think that's because there's a lot of stigma about drug use. Tough on drugs has been a sort of policy in our country for a really long time. And I think politicians think that there are votes in being tough on drugs. I actually think they're wrong about that I think that the majority of the population do understand that we want to keep people safe, and I think the majority of the population do. uh, know that there are heaps of ways, we can do better than just arresting people or using sniffer dogs and that kind of thing, but I think politicians want to take the easy way out and that's to be seen to be tough on crime and tough on drugs. Uh, They think it looks good in the public. And I'm actually not really sure that that's true anymore. I think that the public know that this could work and the public think we could do better. But politicians are sometimes a bit behind the public.
7: So one of the main criticisms of offering these services has been that it could encourage illicit drug use at these festivals. Uh, Do you think that this is a fair assessment of the situation?
2: Drug checking has been reviewed and evaluated all around the world. And one of the things that they've looked at is, you know, could it have unintended consequences of people using more drugs or taking things they wouldn't otherwise take? And what we know from the evaluation of drug checking services in Australia and around the world is that the opposite happens. that people who use drug checking services are very likely to report using less drugs afterwards because we can explain how strong their drugs might be. We also know that if people get a test result that's not as expected, so the the sample contains something they didn't know was in there. We know that a really large proportion of those people throw those drugs out and don't take them because they didn't want to take those substances anyway. So we know from a whole bunch of research from both Australia and overseas that drug checking doesn't increase drug use. What it does do is it decreases harm and it helps people make safer choices.
7: Was there anything else that you felt was important that you'd like to add?
2: I think drug checking, it's inevitable that drug checking or pill testing will become a national policy. Wherever it's worked elsewhere overseas, it becomes pretty mainstream really quickly. Um, It's not as controversial as governments think it is. And once it starts up, it's effective pretty quickly, like we've seen with Canberra. And so I think that we'll probably see that in Queensland soon. Queensland's announced their support for pill testing. uh, And I think that it's inevitable that the other states will follow. So I think... It would just be nice if they could hurry up because the longer we wait, then the more lives we've got at risk.
0: That was The Wire's Isaac Brogan speaking with Chief Executive Officer of The Loop Australia, Cameron Francis. You're listening to The Wire, independent current affairs on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary Kate Hannigan in meanjin Brisbane. A big hello to our friends in Bellingen, New South Wales, on Two Triple B FM. To our listeners in Armidale on Tune FM, and to the other side of the country to Kalamunda Community Radio, 6KCR 102.5 FM. Melbourne's youth community radio station, Sin Media, is hosting an emergency fundraiser to keep the station open. With the pandemic, loss of grant funding and the current cost-of-living crisis, the station says they've struggled to stay afloat. After 20 years of platforming young people's voices, Sin has only six weeks to save the station. Sin's contributor for The Wire, Lachlan Patrick, asked Sinn Community Manager, Laura Green, about the moment they realised the station was in financial trouble.
1: It became clear to us uh, closer to the start of this year that we needed to diversify our revenue streams. So we've made a lot of attempts at doing that, bringing in sponsorships, running a radiothon. Obviously, people don't have as much to give, and we completely understand that. Um, But as things have snowballed, all those attempts we've made have caused us to look at you know our bottom line and say maybe we need to bring in our community's help this time because uh you know there's there's only so much to go around in grants at the moment and um we really needed to put that call out
6: to go from this general sense of okay we need to make a plan here to we have six weeks to go Mm. when was the turning point
1: we have made bids for increased funding and we have made bids for new funding. The final straw was that all of those things were knocked back. It wasn't from any one particular source, but it was unfortunately something that snowballed probably just in the last two weeks. So that was when we decided to hit the alarm button and say, you know, we really need that support now from former sinners, current sinners, people who listen to us, all our friends across Melbourne and Geelong and the country.
6: You were talking there about a a variety of sources. Do you feel like there's been an over-reliance maybe on any one particular kind of funding?
1: I wouldn't say it's necessarily an over-reliance. It's very common for community broadcasters to have a large portion of its funding come through grants. It's also really common for them to have other revenue streams like sponsorships and... Uh, regular radiothons and to bring on subscribers and what we've done at sin in the past i think has been to prioritize a very eclectic sound we have 12 to 25 year olds on air we know that you know every decade or so there could be an economic downturn that just sort of is a pattern of things and I hope in future that we are prepared and obviously we couldn't see something like the COVID pandemic coming. I think that was really the original catalyst for some of these, for this situation we found ourselves in, in terms of not being able to run our social enterprise business.
6: As I want to talk there a little bit about that community because we have these financial challenges at Send that you're experiencing, but also there's been issues with volunteer attrition and and finding them and keeping them. Do you feel like those are are challenges you're facing and are they perhaps contributing to what's going on now?
1: We work pretty closely with our grant providers to understand why they might cut our funding or why they might not be able to offer it one year. Sometimes it's just about sharing it around to different community stations in different years or different nonprofits. profits um, A lot of nonprofits are suffering financially at the moment because com- uh, grants have been extremely competitive since the pandemic began. So back to the question of participation at SIN, I think... Young people have become, I think, accustomed to a different way of working since COVID. They're also accustomed to things being cancelled regularly uh, or postponed or rescheduled. And so I would guess that they're experiencing a lot of burnout and that makes participation in volunteer activities harder. But there is a lot of work to do to build back the community that was so big before COVID. I've been working really hard on a lot of plans for 2024 and how we can really engage our volunteers in 2024. That can only happen if SIN continues to exist past this six weeks.
6: People have have lost their jobs. Mm. What was it like in that moment?
1: Yeah, obviously that was really devastating news to receive late last week. That is a decision made by the board and upper management, so I wasn't directly involved in that decision. However, I understand that it was our last resort. We knew this might be a possibility if all things fell against us and we put it off for as long as we possibly could. And really, I just want to thank those staff members for being incredible people uh, to work with.
6: What's the plan beyond the six weeks if this campaign is successful?
1: We've been working really hard in the background on our strategic planning for the next three years. So... We'll be looking at the ways we can implement those strategies. That does help guide what we do at SIN. The other thing is really listening to our leadership team from this year. They have stood by us incredibly strongly. Community manager at SIN, Laura Green there, speaking
0: with SIN's Lachlan Patrick. If you would like to donate, you can find the link to the fundraiser on our website at thewire.org.au.
3: different take on Australian current affairs. This is The Wire on your community radio.
0: Last month, the inaugural First Nations Dingo Forum was held in Cairns, with over 20 nations calling on all levels of government to end lethal control of dingoes and to designate them as a protected species. The animal has proved controversial with some state governments like New South Wales, where dingoes are still treated as pests. Recent evidence suggests dingoes play a vital role in our ecosystem and hold a significant place in cultural and spiritual practices of First Nations folk throughout the country. The Wire's Tony Pankaluik, spoke with Dr. Bradley Smith, a dingo expert and senior lecturer in psychology at Central Queensland University, to learn more about our dingoes.
5: Can you explain why dingoes are such a misunderstood species?
3: I think it comes down to the risk that they pose to the livestock. So 200 years ago, when white whitefellas came to Australia and brought with them livestock, sheep and cattle, dingoes have been causing them a hard time. And it's still the same today. So dingoes still pose that same risk. And then we have other events like Zaria Chamberlain, you know, the dingo taking the baby stories, which really create a bit of fear in the community around the risk that dingoes pose as well. So it's just hundreds of years of bad press, I guess, for the dingo.
5: Do dingoes contribute for a healthy ecosystem in our country?
3: They sure do. Dingoes are considered native and they are really integrated into the ecosystem. They are our top water predator. As you know, on Lion King, you know, you've got the top of the food chain and everything that's underneath it gets impacted when you take them out.
5: Now I understand dingoes hold a strong cultural significance for First Nations people, but is it all nations or is it those that simply have it as their totem animal?
3: Dingoes are considered really culturally significant across the country to all First Nations people. Some cultures or some countries have the... The dingo is more important than others, but all of them really consider all wildlife, but particularly dingoes, to be significant in dreaming stories, in the history of the country, and also the relationship they have with the dingo.
5: Do dingoes intermingle a lot with feral dogs, and do they contain a high DNA mixture? What's the go with that?
3: One of the things that governments and the agricultural industry do is try and label all the dingoes or the dogs out in the bush as wild dogs a term that encompasses like feral dogs, domestic dogs, dingoes. But what we've been finding with modern DNA or genetics is that most of the animals out there are pure dingoes. By that, I mean not much dog ancestry. So actually, we're killing dingoes. We're not killing dogs.
5: We find that the states have very differing techniques in managing the dingoes. So I know states in general, like they run differently because, you know, different governments and all. Could you explain like just the differences in the treatment of dingoes in various states? Which ones they're a little bit better off Which states maybe they're not too well off
3: The management of dingoes is quite messy to be honest So federally we have the dingoes are considered native But they're not listed as protected There's no protection across the country So that leaves all the states to manage dingoes however they wish to and every state does it differently. So in Victoria for example dingoes are considered threatened but they're not protected on private land and they run these buffer zones around national and state parks where they bait dingoes in national parks. So they're protected but not really protected. And then we have places like South Australia which has underneath the dingo fence the dingo is declared a pest and have an eradication policy where they just don't want any dingoes anywhere below the fence. But above the they're kind of considered native and not controlled. So It's just every state's different and it, there's no consistency.
5: Just with management of dingoes what do you think are the best non-lethal ways to protect livestock from dingoes?
3: In terms of dingo management we all want the same thing right we don't want dingoes to be killing sheep but it's just the way that we go about it. A lot of people want to eradicate the dingo but there are actually non-lethal solutions and one of the best ones that we've found is livestock guarding animals so donkeys and also domestic dogs, marama dogs for example, are really good at providing protection for livestock. A little bit like shepherding. So we used to hang out with our sheep as shepherds but now we can have these other animals doing that job for us. The main way that we manage dingoes is by lethal methods. So that's poison, shooting and trapping. But actually what we've been finding is that the problem hasn't gone away over 200 years of doing this same practice, nothing's gotten better. Dingoes are still impacting the sheep industry. So we really should be thinking about other alternative ways that might be more effective that consider First Nations perspectives on the dingo, protect and preserve the ecological role of the dingo, and trying to balance both the human and dingo.
0: That was Dr Bradley Smith, dingo expert and senior lecturer in psychology at Central Queensland University, ending that report. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening, wherever you are in Australia. The Wire has been produced with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. You can check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Turbal and Jagera countries on which the program has been produced. And we pay our respects to Aboriginal Elders past, present and emerging. Today, The Wire came to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan. Thanks so much for your company. And we'll see you next time on The Wire.